Mark 6, starting at verse 14. This is God's word. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet like one of the old prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herod's daughter, Herodias' daughter, came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And when she came in, immediately with haste, to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought uh, his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is God's word. You know, Jesus has been teaching us, and we've been learning together as a community, um, about the kingdom of God. That's been his, his, his big idea from the, the very beginning. And uh, we, we've been seeing in our studies through Mark, um, if we want to understand Jesus and his ministry, um, we go back to the first words that he uttered in the Gospel of Mark. Mark. 1 verse 14 and 15. And Jesus said, uh, the kingdom of of, of God is among you. Uh, It's here. It's coming. Repent and believe the good news. And as we've been seeing over over the weeks that followed then, Jesus has been uh, showing and preaching and proclaiming and announcing and demonstrating the kingdom of God and, and showing everybody what it looks like and how you get into it. And then he's been instructing his disciples, uh, they've been on training missions, uh, to go and do likewise. They too were were, were sent in our last um, section uh, in chapter 6. They were sent out to to preach and proclaim the kingdom, to to heal, to announce, to show that the kingdom is among among you. And so as the church, we we too get our our marching orders from the disciples. We we see what they're doing, we see how Jesus uh, sent them out, and we too uh, then consider how it looks for us on mission in in the apostolic faith uh, to continue the ministry that they set uh, in front of us. Uh, But the problem is, what do you do when you don't want to join Jesus on mission? Um, what, What do you do if it just seems rather unattractive to go out 
and, and, and preach the gospel and, and try and do some healing and, 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 and do all that? What, what, if, what if it's not an attractive option to you? What if you've got your own projects that you're working on, your own interests, the other stuff that floats your boat, but this idea of going out and, and proclaiming the kingdom of Jesus and showing it in works, um, what if that doesn't switch you on? Um, let's, let's be honest, and, and, and maybe it doesn't, and that's, that's something that we want to take seriously. And that's, that's what this, this text today uh, really addresses. Uh, so we're talking about this subject this morning of, of kingdom building and, um, and what happens when kingdom building goes, goes wrong or if, if we become skewed in our understanding. So we're going to look, first of all, under, under four headings, the problem of kingdom building, all right, number one. Number two, we're going to see the personalization of kingdom building. Number three, the point of kingdom building. And number four, the power of kingdom building. They all begin with P, Problem, personalization, point, and power. First of all, what is the problem when it comes to kingdom building? Um, well, we see that in Herod's case in this uh, episode that we've just read together. Herod uh, was interested in kingdom building, all right, uh, but it was his kingdom that he was interested in. You know, it was his fame that he was primarily concerned with, his influence, his desire for his own power and his own glory. It begins to own him. And as we'll see as the story goes on, he starts to unravel. He, he thought he could control the situation, form the kingdom that he wanted, do everything that was necessary to get that, but it, it, it ends up controlling him. And so he ends up committing this great injustice, this evil act of murder. And as we'll see in a few moments, he actually becomes controlled by controlling forces. So he set out to build his own kingdom, but he ended up being controlled by it. Well, what are those controlling forces that we see here? It's important for us to get our head around the story. Um, I've identified four controlling forces um, that have been pressing against Herod as he's been trying to build his kingdom. Um, listen out for them. See if you, can, you, can, you might find more. But this four will, will keep us going for now. First controlling force in his life was the force or the impact of his own family. Very strong controlling force in his kingdom building. Um, this Herod, this King Herod, as he's called here, um, was uh, from an aristocratic family. Um, uh, his father was known, known as Herod the Great. Uh, he, there's nothing really great about him in terms of his character. In fact, uh, he was a ruthless individual. Um, Herod the Great was, was very able. He's very politically savvy. Um, he, he was the one, by the way, that the, the wise men went to visit in the days when Jesus had just been born. Jesus was a baby. Do you remember that? And the wise men had a, um, were told by God, follow the star, uh, go, go and find the baby. We want to we come and worship him. And of course, uh, Herod the Great um, said, yes, that sounds wonderful. I want to worship him too. And he went off and ordered a massacre of all the little boys in the particular town where Jesus was born. So this is the present Herod, that's his dad. That's what he grew up with. This is the kind of influence he had at home. Uh, not, not to mention that, but his father, Herod the Great, had 10 wives, all right? He gives uh, Henry VIII a run for his money. And so with every wife, he had multiple children. It was just like a, an episode from the Kardashians. You know, you just didn't know who was related to who. There was all sorts of intrigue, all sorts of uh, dodgy behavior between all of the various um, parties that had uh, some say in the kingdom. Eventually, the kingdom was divided into four, uh, mostly by the, the Romans. And, and so this particular Herod, uh, one of the sons, took a quarter of the of the. Uh, um, the, the kingdom of Herod the Great. 
And as we can see in verses 17 to 18, um, Herod wanted to marry his brother's wife called Herodias. Confusingly, she was called Herodias. She was actually part of the same family, just sort of distant relative, but she was part of the same family. It's probably why she's got a similar name. Anyway, he wanted to marry his, his brother's wife. And uh, obviously, as he was brought up, this boy, he, he, he was taught by the influence of his father, you've just got to do whatever it takes to seize power. You know, you've got to look after yourself. You've got to do it however you can. Destroy your opposition before they destroy you. These are the kind of things he saw modeled in his father and, and fleshed out uh, from the family. And so this, this, this family uh, controlled Herod. Whether he realized it or not, that's where he learned his attitudes. You know, that's, that's where he, he, he de- developed his values. And, and he simply repeated the sins and the traits of his, of his fathers of previous generations. He just carried that on. And so here we see him uh, behaving true to type, just, just carrying on the sins of the father. Same old, same old. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, is what we say. So the family is the first controlling force in his kingdom building. The second one, romance. He got his woman, we see in the text. He had to jump through hoops to get her, Herodias is her name. She left her husband, uh, Herod's brother, Philip. Um, he, they, they got divorced. Herod was already married. He also got divorced from his wife so that him and Herodias uh, could be together again. Didn't go that well, actually. A few years after this, this story was written or this episode was recorded, um, his ex-father-in-law, Herod's ex-father-in-law, who himself was a king of a sort of a neighboring uh, tribe, actually went to war with this Herod and beat him flat in AD 36. Um, so he, he really got what came to him. But um, he, lo- he lost in battle. But anyway, there they are, Herod and Herodias, together at last. Herod is obviously willing to do whatever it takes to get the love of his life. You know, bend the rules, whatever it takes to get her. But as, as you can probably see, and if you examine the story uh, again, you'll see that his relationship to her became a major pressure point in his kingdom-building uh, activities. Uh, she influenced him very highly indeed. In fact, what we can say is that, that most likely Herodias in this story, the wife, controlled the situation. She pulled the strings. Such was the strength of this romantic uh, relationship that he was in with her. She knew Herod's weak spots. She pressed on them. She knew how to get him to do what she wanted him to do. We can detect a little bit of what sort of woman she was in verse 19. It says that she held a grudge against John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist had called them out for the the state of their their marriage and, and the way they went about it. It's like a soap opera. And as a result, it says that she wanted him dead in verse 19. Um, And so she uses every uh, trick in the box to pull at his heartstrings, uh, her husband's heartstrings, to get the job done. You know, she's she's kind of cold in this story, right? She's calculating. I would say she's very vindictive. And yet she waits quietly for her opportunity, for her moment. Herod was just a passive man in this story. Um, She saw her opportunity. He was blinded by romance. And he was like putty in her hands. And she got what she wanted. So family, romance. Another big part of it here, another big controlling force was, was sex. 
sexuality. Again, an ideal opportunity, it says in verse 21, presented itself to Herodias to, to flesh out her plan to see the end of John the Baptist. It was uh, Herod's birthday. He gave himself a, a, a celebration. You know, come and celebrate me, everybody. And uh, so he gathered um, all a bunch of friends and, and, and uh, leaders, etc. and he gave a banquet, it says, and, and, and apparently the party was in full swing. Uh, the drinks were flowing. The good times were rolling. And in comes Herodias' daughter. It's actually interesting in this text, there's no name given to her. It's not like Mark didn't know it. But he doesn't tell us her name. She's just Herodias' daughter. Who's in charge? It's Herodias. What's the girl's name? Doesn't matter. You know, she's just a thing, right? She's just an object that Herodias uses to get her way. That's what Mark would have us understand. But she's a young woman, and it says here she came in in verse 22 and danced for the, for the party, for, for Herod, and pleased him. Uh, scripture is very bashful at times, um, rightly so. And uh, it doesn't really give us the full details, but we don't need to go too much further to understand what, what kind of event was taking place. Uh, very provocative display, no doubt. Anyway, it worked because he said in this sort of semi-drunken state, I'll do whatever you need. Uh, I'll give you half the kingdom. Herodias, you see, knew that alcohol plus a party vibe Plus, plus the powerful guests, plus his desire to look and be powerful would lead somehow to some macho behavior. And so we see how sex was such a strong controlling force for, for Herod. This is more of a stag do in Ibiza that we have here rather than a stately function in Windsor Castle. And the fourth then and final controlling force that we see here pressing in on Herod were his esteemed guests. I guess we could call them elites, um, people that he wanted to impress. Uh, verse 21, uh, this opportunity came. He gathered together his, his um, well, they're described as nobles, military commanders, and leading men of Galilee. You know, the high rollers, the top brass, the ones who held the positions of power in his community. Um, he wanted to look powerful in, in their eyes. He wanted to be thought well of in front of them. He wanted to appear to be the strong leader. And, and he wanted to project this idea that, that he, could, he could do whatever he wanted. He could, he could give what he wished. He could receive whatever. He just had to speak the word. What a, what a great man. What a great leader. That's the kind of thing he wanted to project. That's why he probably invited these people to come and, and seal this. I can give even half my kingdom if I want to. That's how powerful I am. Just the word is all that's required. He wants to impress them. He wanted their approval. He wanted them to think well of him. He wanted them to recognize and applaud how, how, how great a leader he was. And he just craved their acceptance. And again, just such a, a weak spot, such a controlling force that led to what he did. So together, uh, these four Forces, the family, the romance, the sexuality, uh, you know, the, the uh, approval, play together. It just was a perfect storm. Herodias was thrilled. It led to this foolish behavior and led to him committing this great injustice, murdering John the Baptist. So strong was his craving for power, for approval, to be the man um, that he allowed himself to be forced into a corner. He had no option. Impossible situation. And it says the girl 
ran out with this offer in hand. She went to her mother. What shall I do? What shall I ask for, mother? And she said, bring me the head of John the Baptist. And so with ruthless efficiency, the executioner was dispatched and in came the head of John the Baptist on a plate. A bit grisly, but that's how they did it. And it says in verse 26, I love this, just so ironic, isn't it? It says he was exceedingly sorry for what he did, but he did it anyway. He was forced to do it, he would say, but he gave the word. See, the problem with, with kingdom building comes when you try and build your own kingdom. And Herod found that to his own expense. Uh, because when you're trying to build your own kingdom, it might start off well, but eventually it will press in on you. And eventually it will turn on you. And eventually it will collapse in on top of your head. Uh, we see that if left to his own uh, direction. That's what happens. Uh, he, he, he desired to be powerful, and yet that power owned him. And he ended up doing stupid things as a result, spiraling down and down and down and down. So that's the problem of kingdom building. So let's look then about the, the personalization of, of kingdom building. It's a bit of a clunky word, but, but the point is that, that this isn't just uh, looking at what happened to Herod, because these four factors that we've seen together uh, can, can really impinge and press in on us as well. I'm not saying they're the only four, there's plenty more, um, but let's just examine this for a second and, and think about how this might push into to you and me and us as a community if we're trying to build a kingdom that's not the kingdom of God. Um, family, first of all, your tribe, right? Uh, we, we, can, we can understand that broadly because not everybody comes from a, a traditional uh, family. Um, some do, some don't. But your tribe, those, those who, who brought you up, those who you hung around with at the start, those who um, you know, nurtured you, they're the ones that, that, that have a, a big part to play in why you think what you think and why you behave in the way you do. We like to think as, as modern Western people that I am a product of my own um, choices, my own thoughts, my own desires. Uh, we hate the thought of being sort of preconditioned by the tribe that we come from. But in fact, it's such a strong uh, current. We're, we're just fooling ourselves if we think we get to create ourselves from scratch, right? Our families uh, and those that our tribe that we came, came from or come from give us uh, such a powerful steer in terms of the values and the attitudes that we have. For example, how do you deal with conflict? 95% of how you deal with conflict will come from how you've seen it dealt with in your own tribe, your own family. How do you treat elders? You know, how do you, how, how did you, if you knew both, how did your mum treat your dad? How does your dad treat your mum? How, how do siblings get on with each other? You, you learn how to treat men and women uh, based on, uh, you know, what, what you saw modelled in front of you growing up. Your politics, your attitudes to outsiders, all these things are formed and shaped. Not 100%, but they have a big steer on why you believe and say and think the way you do. Um, and there, was, there was one time, not in this church, by the way, just to be clear, but I was having what I would describe as a membership chat um, with somebody from another church uh, I, was, I was leading. And um, uh, we sat down, and, and my job really, my, my, my aim was to confront him about his attitude towards women. And um, it was clear to, to me and to, to others as well um, that he was very condescending towards women, used derogatory terms towards women, just generally a bit sexist, and uh, even towards his own wife in public in church. And I was like, no. So we had a little 
membership chat in McDonald's. If I ever invite you to McDonald's and offer to buy you a coffee, you know what's coming, all right? Amen, just be ready. Um, but yeah, so we sat down and I said, look, uh, friend, brother, you know, we're, we're in the same church. I love you as a brother. Um, but there are some issues here that I can see that are not godly, that are out of step with the Spirit. And I described them to him and I said what I've just shared with you, you know, the attitude towards women. And I just remember so vividly, the color drained from his face. Uh, not red as I was expecting, angry, but white. And he said to me, you know, you've just described my father to me. And that opened up a whole series of conversations about, about that and the influence that he didn't realize was there, but so strong in his life. He, he saw a particular attitude towards women modeled by his father, and he has unconsciously absorbed that and, and apparently, you know, just didn't realize how he was coming off. Um, family is such a strong shaper of us, for better or for worse. Such a controlling force. Not necessarily bad, but not always good either. And so ask yourself, does your family, does your tribe, does it help you, does it press you to build your own kingdom? Or, or, or does it push you towards building the kingdom of God? Depending on what sort of heritage you're from. Romance then. The next factor that Herod dealt with. What about romance? Um, are, you, are you driven by a desire for that perfect relationship that, that, that drove Herod? He did whatever it took to get through the hoops, to get Herodias. And it, for him, it overtook all priorities. And for you, it can overtake all priorities too. Either getting that romantic relationship or once you've got it, conserving it. Is that you? Controlling it. Herod's case he already has it, but he was blinkered. He was blinded by her beauty, her amazingness, whatever it happened to be, even the forcefulness of her character. And he just was driven by that. He made so many compromises, and maybe you might too, if you're not careful, if you're not aware. But she's so beautiful, you might remonstrate with yourself. She knows her Bible so well. Or you might say, but he's so funny, he's so intelligent. You know, I, I, I'll not look at this thing over here or these attitudes or trends, but, uh, you know, I've got these things. If we're not careful, if we're driven by that desire for that perfect romantic relationship, we can end up blinding ourselves to ungodly attitudes, trends and behaviors that just can suck us under. Sexuality, of course, again, is a, a major force. Number three, um, it's shipwrecked so many, um, whether it's pornography the culture of hook, the hookup culture, uh, multiple encounters, you know, for university or, or whatever it happens to be, um, all of which is considered normal these days, of course, and all of which is, is being uh, embraced by younger and younger children um, as our culture becomes more, uh, more and more sexualized. It's such a controlling force, dictates so much. And finally, approval. I think approval is a big one getting the thumbs up from the right people, the attaboys from the right people, the, the nod from those above. Isn't social media predicated on this idea of approval? Uh, we, we, we think it's all about sharing nice pictures, and indeed it is, and, and saying nice things and connecting with people, and those things do happen. But isn't the driving heart behind it approval? Getting likes, getting retweets. Isn't that what, what, what shapes why we put what we do and, and, and the filters that we use and the, and the way that we take so much care don't we do it because we want more likes and more love and more retweets? 
say provocative things just to get, just to get the uh, conversations going. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're uh, from the academy, an academic, a, you know, a scientist, a scholar, or something like that. And again, getting in the right journals, you know, being hired by the right professor, and entering into the right team, um, getting the thumbs up from, from those in the know. In your profession, from your boss, from the, the, the CEO, whoever it happens to be. Uh, whatever circles you love and enjoy and a part of, whether it's arts or education or, or business or whatever. Um, the elites that occupy those positions of power, what are you doing to curry favor with them? to get their approval as a strong, strong force. Let me just summarize here very briefly. These are all good things, by the way, uh, by and large, family, romance, sex, even just uh, you know, the approving um, relationship you can have with someone, a superior, all good things. But the problem is when they become ultimate things, that's when we get trouble. That's when they turn and control you. Um, we, we can use all of these things to build God's kingdom, to gifts for, for us to enjoy, tools for a bigger purpose. But if we use them to build my kingdom, as, as we see in Herod's case, then they ever so start, slightly start to twist and turn and spiral in on you. They start to own you. They start to enslave you. And one day they, they can crush you eventually. That's what we see in Herod's case. So we've seen the, um, <clears throat> the problem of kingdom building. We've seen the personalization of kingdom building, how it can come out in us if we're not careful. Um, what's the point then of kingdom building? You know, why, why all this talk about kingdom building this morning? Well, we see that in John the Baptist. John, John doesn't really say a lot in here. He's, he's, he's uh, largely a passive figure. He's stuck in prison. Uh, he's waiting to see what happens. Uh, but we see this in John's example. This is the point of kingdom building. Um, likewise, John is a man of, of, of great influence, like Herod. Uh, you know, he possessed significant influence when John went into the wilderness and, and proclaimed the good news of, of God and all that. Um, crowds gathered, multitudes gathered to come out and see John. Uh, he even developed a, a unique bunch of disciples that came and followed him and particularly stuck close to him and his teaching. And, and John's message was heard throughout society. And as we've seen, even in the hallways of power, even in the place of, 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 of the palace, Herod's palace and Herodias. She would have read in the paper or something what uh, the latest message from, from uh, the, uh, John the Baptist would have been. And his message is simply this. Uh, we see it in this, the beginning of Mark's gospel. The Lord is coming. Here's the, here's the message. God is coming. Get ready, you people. Get ready because God is coming. His kingdom is coming. So therefore, turn to him. Stop whatever it is you're doing. Repent. Prepare your hearts. You know, I, I'll baptize you to show your, 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 your turning to God. But, but after me comes somebody who's not going to baptize you with water. Someone greater than me is coming. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the gist of his message. And that obviously included calling out scandal. You're not doing what is right. You're not living in a way that honors God. And that includes the royal family. And see, Herodias hated having her dirty washing aired in public like this. Just awful. And so she tried, as we've seen, every effort to suppress him, to stop him yabbering on with his God words. So eventually, somehow or other, it says, the king himself got him, seized him, put him in prison. We'll just keep him quiet for a bit. He can't do too much preaching in there. We'll just sit on him for a while and listen and see what happens. But John was there because he spoke up. He spoke the truth. Of course, he was called by God and given the Holy Spirit. 
And he said, turn to God, all of you, all levels of society. But as a result of being faithful to Jesus, he lost his freedom. He ended up in prison. See, John had influence. John had power. John could, could uh, draw a crowd. And yet, he used it to point to Jesus. Right? He, he, right there, as the guards came to take him and put him into the prison, he had an opportunity to grab power himself, to form a militia, to say, right, at arms, everybody, let's start a revolution. At the very least, let's start a media campaign. But John used what he had to build a different kingdom. His job was to prepare for Jesus, and now his job was done. Well done, good and faithful servant. We've talked a few times um, in this series over the last few weeks about sandwiches. We see these sections of Mark's gospel where there's a story within a story. Remember that? And um, you, you can listen back if you've no idea what that means. But, but we have one here too. This is kind of a sandwich. Um, we, we didn't read these verses together a few moments ago. Um, but the, the passage before this section on John the Baptist, Jesus had just sent out the 12 uh, apostles to, to teach them. He's called them together. Go out, uh, proclaim the kingdom, heal the sick, drive out demons. And so off they go. And then the, the, the next verse after the end of this little section on John the Baptist Back they come again, the apostles, in verse 30 of chapter 6. It says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. You know, they've been out. Uh, we read in verse 13 that, 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 that they cast out many demons. They'd anointed many with oil who were sick and healed them. They'd preached the gospel. It must have been a thrilling few weeks of, of ministry. You know, just amazing. Advancing the kingdom of God. Miracles come, miracles are done, sorry, thy kingdom come. You know, even the demons listen to your name, Jesus, mission successful. And so in, in rush these 12 apostles, full of the stories from the fields about what happened. Amazing stuff. But then in between this sandwich, these two bookends of excitement, kingdom growth, here's John, the faithful witness the preacher of God's word. He had the same Holy Spirit on him. He had a, a, a calling given by him by God, which he faithfully preached. And yet for him, obedience meant prison. It meant getting into trouble. It meant eventually losing his life. I think the point that Mark is making in, in this sort of sandwiches or these, this bookend, if you like, is, is that when it comes to being a, a, a follower of Jesus, when it comes to being a disciple, and we do that together on community, but in community on mission, but, but when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus, yes, we go out together on escapades for the kingdom, and it's exciting, and it's awesome, and, and we see victory, and we see advancement of the kingdom, and, and it's brilliant. We see breakthroughs, we see life, we see healing, amen. But Mark shows us here, being a disciple of Jesus always involves sacrifice. Always involves sacrifice. And perhaps even at the thick end of the wedge, a loss of your liberty, and maybe even a loss of your life. That's what a disciple looks like. So being a follower of Jesus, Mark wants to show us, being a follower of Jesus will cost you it will cost you. If it hasn't yet costed you for being a disciple in Jesus, then you're probably not a disciple in Jesus, quite honestly. It will cost you. 
There will always be an element of sacrifice to following Jesus. There always will be. You'll be you will be misunderstood. You will be mocked as a believer in Jesus. And I'm talking about now. I'm talking about 21st century here in Belfast. You will be mocked for your faith in Jesus if you're a true follower of Jesus. You will lose out here and there. If you, you may get dumped uh, by, by uh, your boyfriend or girlfriend or something like that. You may get slammed online. Yeah, you may get sacked from your job. And of course, as we were thinking of praying a few moments ago, this has happened to believers throughout the history of the church. It seems to come with a job. It's certainly happening now uh, with believers across the globe who are called to be faithful to Jesus, even to death. But you see, the point of kingdom building that we're trying to understand together here is that uh, we are to use our power, use our influence, use our resources to build God's kingdom. We, we give it away to build his kingdom for his kingdom rather than using it to, to, to build our own. And sometimes that will cost us very dearly indeed. Less of me, Jesus, and more of you is the cry of a true disciple. It's the point of kingdom building. Finally, then, let's think about the, the power of kingdom building. Why, why should we do this? Why, why should we use everything that we have to build something outside of ourselves? Why should we live as a community on mission and adopt this posture of giving it up, giving it away, serving others? Why, why shouldn't we use our intellect or our resources or our, our money or our connections or our power for our own gain to, to, you know, to, to, to further our own selves, our own well-being, our, our own platform? What, what's wrong with that? Well, the answer to all these questions and, and the power of kingdom building comes from Jesus, right? comes from the gospel. Um, because, you know, when we look at the gospel and we see Jesus and, and we, we see that he had all the power and all the authority in heaven and on earth, and yet he, he, he gave it away, or rather he, he laid it aside, um, Paul, Paul writes in, in, uh, in Philippians 2 that, that Jesus made himself poor. He took on the nature of a servant. Why did he do that? Why is that part of the Christian gospel? Well, he did it so that he could have you. He did it for you. He did it to win you to himself. That's why he gave everything up, so he could have you. He gave himself rather than grasping at his own power, and that took him to death, even death on a cross. You know, Herod in this story here, he, he's a king in name only, let's face it. Um, and even that was probably a self ascribed title. He was more of a sort of a governor or a little leader or something. But, you know, King Herod was a king in name only. He hoarded everything he had to build his own kingdom, and it ended up owning him and crushing him and compromising him. He was crushed by his own creation. It just fell on him and knocked him flat. Jesus, on the other hand, he's the true king. He's the true king who, who gave it all, who, who was willing to relegate family and, and, and romance and, and sexuality and influence. He, he relegated all that. He emptied himself, says the scripture, to save you, to, to, to win you back to himself. That's what he did. He did that to bring you into God's kingdom. 
You couldn't come to God on your own, you see. That's why he had to do that. Um, you and I and every other person in this world are too busy building their own kingdoms. You know, taking self-centered actions and decisions. Too, too busy hurting other people in order to get what you want. Too busy rejecting God's kingdom in a million different ways and setting up your own kingdom, the kingdom of me, where everything is just as I want it. Everybody come and serve me and bow to me and honor me. But you see, in the gospel, Jesus put an end to all that. He gave himself for you. He, he laid himself down for you. He gave up his privileges to serve you. And when, you when you see that in the gospel, when you see that Christian gospel, you will take all that you have and you will say, my king, now I want to serve your kingdom. You gave it all for me. I can never repay that, but everything that I have in my hand is yours. Take it. Do with it what you wish. Build your kingdom. See, that's the power of kingdom building. That's what happens when you understand the gospel. See, then, then your highest motive is not self-service. Your highest motive is the kingdom of God. Your highest goal is the glory of God. Not, not grabbing power for yourself or suiting yourself all the time. When you get the gospel and when you, when you take it into yourself, then you are truly free, truly free to be radically generous, truly free to, to look at what's in your hands and say, I'll use this, whatever it is, to serve your kingdom, to build your fame. You know, our vision here at Foundation Church is to, is to catalyze gospel transformation in our city and in our nation. And we do that through resourcing, renewing, and re replication. We've got a blog post on that. You can read more if you want. But we, we want to be used by God to catalyze gospel transformation. That's another way of saying we want to be used by God to see his kingdom come in power today. And see, that only happens, folks, when we stop building our own kingdom. Even as a church, when we stop building our own kingdom, when we realize what Jesus has done, and when we give ourselves to his kingdom, that's when we start catalyzing gospel transformation. That's when the kingdom starts to come. Uh, we're, we say here at Foundation, we're a gospel-centered, spirit-empowered community on mission. Um, and, and so, as such, just, just imagine for a second if we... Uh, become an ever-increasing, ever-enlarging group of people who, who, who say, Jesus, you've, you've given it all. I can never repay you, but take what I have. Just imagine the, the radical generosity that, that, that exists in a community like that. Imagine, imagine the impact that that could have out there. Radically committed disciples of Jesus, that's what we can do together. We say Jesus gave it all, we'll give it all to him and then by his grace and through his power we will see the kingdom advancing we'll see it growing we'll see it moving outwards to the ends of the earth so Jesus is calling he's calling you maybe even right now what's your answer let's pray